Hi, this is State Delegate Janelle Wilkins from District 20 in Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. And welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we have been out. We've been on the road. We'll get into that. But first, how are you today? It's Thursday, June 23rd. Busy week, but how are things going? Things are okay here. Uh, Recording remotely again. We've sort of been back and forth on that front, but uh, good to be back in touch. And yeah, it's been a pretty busy week. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Again, lots of stuff going on this week. We want to get right to it. And today on the podcast, we're going to discuss our upcoming primary election and why the results from many races might not be available on election night. Plus, we'll get into President Biden's push for a federal gas tax holiday and his push for states to enact their own gas tax holidays. And that has reignited calls for Maryland to suspend its gas tax, at least temporarily, and to avoid an automatic inflation-driven increase on July 1st. We'll talk about that. And first, Michael, we're going to recap Mako's visits with the Lower Shore Counties and the Maryland Municipal League Conference. Those are the cities and towns. That conference just wrapped in Ocean City. We were there last week. Michael, what are your thoughts just about these visits? I always find them to be really refreshing, actually, to go and and sit down with, with the decision makers and elected officials in all of our counties and just to hear from them and talk about the, the last session and what Mako's up to and, and really to hear what's going on the ground there. I think it's incredibly important for us to, to to do that regularly and to hear from our electeds, all of the electeds, right? Not just the ones that come to Annapolis uh, right. for our legislative committee during session. But I always find them interesting. I thought MML had a great conference. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts generally? Yeah, I mean, we we get lucky to be able to to do a twofer. Um, Mako makes a point to try and get out and visit with the governing body in every county at least once a year. So we're either on the agenda with the county council or, you know, we meet with the county commissioners or or something along those lines and get out to every jurisdiction with the association president and whomever we can get from from the staff. And the idea there is it, it helps center us as a representative and service organization to hear from them. So we're we're delivering news and information, but a lot of that has already reached them through our blog and through things that come directly from Mako to members and stuff they've heard about at conferences and so forth. But I, I do like the, the one-to-one exchange, um, you know, when you get a chance to sit down with the electeds from a particular place and uh, I, I I agree with you. It is it's refreshing. It's a good it's good guidance. I mean, they want to talk about specific topics, and sometimes they're not what we had on our radar, right? <laughs> so right, that, yeah, that definitely. definitely does happen. We want we we come down and we want to talk about here's the latest with you know implementing the police accountability legislation. We talk about budget and fiscal issues, and hey, here's what's happened on income tax things, and that's going to leave you with more local discretion than might have been otherwise. So, you know, we tend to focus on, we'll talk about highway user revenues and how that turned into a pretty productive outcome from this session. You know, we take some high points, uh, but then it turns out, you know, they've got stuff on their mind and they want to talk about 
we're still dealing with a lot of pressure for our farmland to turn into solar. What's happening there? Or, uh, you know, these, these building standards issues are still giving us trouble. We're, we're having trouble getting building permits and so forth. That's the, the, the range of things that are on the minds of our local officials and what they're facing in their community is really wide, right? But it's it's also good for us to hear that from them. So I I I value this process really highly, and I'm glad you you know you and I got to do some of the visits on the lower shore while we were in town to join with our sister organization, the Municipal League in in Ocean City for their June conference and exposition and so forth. It's a it's a good twofer for us. Definitely, and I, I agree. I mean, you, you hear. A lot of the same things, but then always, every every time I go, you hear something off the wall, right? Something that is hyper local or an issue that you know we could help with, that the state could help with, and a lot of that stuff you may not get when you're up here in Annapolis. So that stuff's super important. It's an election year too, so of course uh, a lot of talk about that and and how that's going to go. But I thought that I did think the conference was really uh, well attended and a lot of good content. And Michael, as we were uh, leaving Somerset County. I snapped a photo for Twitter of a beautiful ballot drop box that had just been installed in front of the, the county <laughs> government building there. And I think that's an easy way for us to maybe transition into our next topic. And we're going to put links in the show notes, of everything you need to know about elections, how to vote, how to get a ballot, where you vote, anything else is on the Conduit Street blog. So we'll link all this up. But Michael, the bottom line is we have a July 19th primary. It's coming up very fast. We are uh, transitioning to mail-in ballots. We did that in 2020. It worked pretty well. This year, the state sent applications to register voters eligible to, to vote in the primary. You could return that application and then you would be mailed a mail-in ballot. Those ballots are out the door. So we expect there to be a lot of these mail-in ballots, Michael. And that's sort of setting the stage. We have a delayed primary. We had problems with redistricting. So there were lots of delays there. But let's get into this issue, Michael, of primary election day, and the polls are going to close, right? And normally we're used to saying, okay, well, maybe in a few minutes we'll get the results or they'll be on the 11 o'clock news right. for sure, right? But this year, maybe not so much. And that's because, you know, we have this administrative problem that we want to get into a little bit. So Michael, mail-in ballots, I know that you, you've you always voted um, no excuse absentee. So this is something you're used to, and it seems like it's catching on pretty well. Um, I think that's generally true, but you're right to describe this as this, it's not a new idea for someone to be able to vote absentee, like absentee with a reason. I'm going to be out of town or I'm overseas in the military, military but I'm still a Maryland voter. So absentee voting has been around for forever. Maryland, a number of years ago, decided to join a list of states allowing absentee for no reason at all, just by request. All you have to do is say, I'd prefer to vote, you know, to vote that way. So rather than go to the polling place, I just want to send my thing in, send in my ballot. So I've been on board with that for years, but that's always been a relatively small number of voters who take the state up on that option. You have to pull, right? I, I have to ask for the ballot rather than someone sending me an application saying, hey, it's as simple as sending this thing back to us. So now that we're kind of in the push business, it's this so we're, we're not one of the states that's gone to all mail ballot. So this isn't the Postal Service doing the entire election. And in some states, you know, some some places have gone to voting by mail as the centerpiece. For us, it's just become a more visible and, and substantial option. 
um, because we've sent everybody the application directly. And, and that, you know, that triggers a lot more people saying, yeah, I might as well do that. Right. So again, it worked well in 2020, but, but we had different circumstances back then, Michael, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic operating under a state of emergency. We had different rules and regulations for how to handle mail-in ballots and why they are working well. Uh, and the state is, is doing a good job. We're in the push business now, as you mentioned, the state has failed to update the administrative side of things, right? So this will mean that local boards of elections cannot begin to process mail-in ballots until after the clo- polls close on election day. So that's going to be a problem, especially if we've already mentioned, we're sending out lots of these ballots hundreds of thousands, Michael. And so oh. the state, yeah, the state's already sent applications to everybody eligible, over a million, right? They've already mailed out 430,000 ballots, and they've only recently sent out another 600,000 applications, as I mentioned earlier, to newly registered voters. So it's definitely going to be a case where we're going to see a lot of mail-in ballots cast in the primary election. And again, we haven't updated the backside of the of the rules and regs to allow for our local boards of election to process these ballots in a timely manner. Right. So I guess that's that's the the the, the pivot here is in magnitude, not necessarily the policy of letting people vote through the mail. It's the magnitude because we've made it so much easier and so much more visible that the number of envelopes that are going to be sitting in each board of elections is going to be just like it's going to be a hundred times as many as it used to be or something along those lines, right? It's going to have to be way, way more than was the case in the 2018 or 16 or, or 14 election, that this is a much, much bigger deal. And ideally you would have changed the laws on how do you process and manage this sort of stuff. I mean, there's, you know, there, there are steps involved from going from a sealed signed envelope to this is an actual ballot that we're going to count, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not super knowledgeable in this stuff, but you're elbow to elbow with our local election administrators and their leadership and so forth. This is, this is a process you have to take seriously, right? Yes. And when it comes to canvassing and processing, there are all these different terms, but I think the easy way to understand it is you don't just open up the envelope and stick the ballot in a scanner, right? There are steps that you have to go through before you can do that. And it takes time. It takes people. And so really now you're going to be behind the the gun, right? In terms of being able to get this stuff turned around quickly and get the results out the door quickly. And again, you know, we've talked about this before. Our current law fails to recognize that the modern trends in voter preference, new technologies, and basically the realities of administering elections in our local communities. And again, as more people opt to to cast mail-in ballots and they get more comfortable with it, the local boards are going to need flexibility to, to provide those meaningful results quickly after the polls close. But, Michael, state law prohibits local boards from beginning the ballot canvas for mail-in ballots until the Wednesday following an election. Now, it's not like nobody thought about this, right? We we had bills in the General Assembly, and actually we supported a bill that the General Assembly passed that would have allowed local boards to begin canvassing these mail-in ballots up to eight days before Election Day. So again, getting things in order so that you're ready to run them through the scanner and produce those results quickly after the polls close. Unfortunately, though, the governor vetoed that legislation because of other provisions in the bill. And Michael, those provisions dealt with ballot curing, right? And and get into that a little bit and, and what that means and, and maybe why that can be controversial in some respects. So my, a couple of things there. One is, just to be clear, 
the, the proposal in the bill was not to start telling the world what the vote count is in advance of election day, right? We're not, we're not trying to touch on that third rail idea of, you know, don't bother voting because this thing's right. a slam dunk for candidate B over candidate A. This isn't that kind of situation. What we're talking about is just the professional election administrators could go through the process of opening the envelopes getting them you know, into position so that they could be properly counted and tallied rapidly on election night, as opposed to having to start that entire process much, much later. So first, you know, first thing, this, this wasn't about, hey, you can watch a running tally four days before election Tuesday and already have an idea who's winning in the early returns. This wasn't that at all. Great point. This, Great point. Yeah. And then, but this, this idea of ballot curing, I think we've, We've, we've learned a little bit about this. If you're an election nerd, like, like you definitely are, and maybe I'm at least election nerd adjacent. Um, but the idea of ballot curing is someone makes a good faith effort to try and vote through this process, but they, they missed one box. They forgot to sign a particular place or they forgot to, you know, they put the form in the wrong place or something along those lines. Do you just ignore that person's vote or do you go through some legal effort to confirm, okay, you did send this in. Thank you. You know, like you did send this in. We're going to count that vote. We have, we have that, that issue has been remedied. And that's part of what was in this bill was creating a Maryland process for curing a vote and making sure the person's intentions got counted, even if they didn't go through the steps perfectly. Is that, is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, it's, it's a great way to put it. And that can be controversial in some respects. And so that was the, the part of the bill that the governor referenced when he vetoed the bill. But unfortunately, you know, the, the ability to start getting the ballots ready to be counted, that these, all these mail-in ballots was in the bill too. And that dies with the veto. So kind of, you know, we're stuck now, Michael, because of course, uh, the General Assembly would have to go back uh, for a special session to override any vetoes. That's unlikely to happen. And by the way, we're approaching primary election day, so we don't really have time for that anyway. And so we're stuck. And when you mention, you know, local boards are already under strenuous circumstances. Again, re delays with redistricting data. They have pandem pandemic driven supply shortages. So a lot of folks mentioning that it's hard to get the correct paper uh, to actually, you know, you know, get the ballots processed and send them out very, very, very much have difficulty with recruiting election judges. And then, of course, we're still dealing with the, the spread of false information and our election officials have been threatened uh, because of some, you know, these false narratives that are going on out there. So a lot of pressure on our local boards of elections right now. And I have to mention, too, Michael, with mail-in ballots, you know, let's say Michael Sanderson gets his mail-in ballot, you fill it out, you send it in, but you're worried that, you know, maybe it didn't get there on time and maybe it got stuck somewhere. So I'm going to show up on Election Day and I'm going to vote. And you can do that, but you'll have to vote provisionally. So the, the local board will see that you were sent a mail-in ballot and they don't know if you actually got that back in or if you put it in the ballot drop box. So they'll let you vote provisionally and they'll set that aside. But they won't be able now to address even the provisional votes until they can actually count the mail-in ballots because they need to check to make sure that Michael Sanderson didn't vote twice. So not only are you now gonna have the issue with mail-in ballots, you're also gonna have an issue where people have shown up because they're worried their ballot didn't get in on time or whatever the case may be. And that's a sizable amount of people who have to vote provisionally. And all of those ballots are gonna be held up 
until we can actually get through all of these mail-in ballots to do that cross-check. So that's another piece of this puzzle, which I don't think is getting as much attention, but that's going to be a problem too. And I guess, Michael, we can we can sort of talk about, we, we said that, okay, well, the General Assembly could have come back for a special session, but but what can be done now is really the question. And there are a couple options on the table, Michael. And, and the first one starts with maybe the, the State Board of Elections. And I want you to get into a little bit of why elections are different and, and why we often see stuff go through court when it comes to elections. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm into speculation mode here because this issue is like this issue is challenging as a structure of government matter. And that's this is like my lane of nerddom is, oh, boy, we have to rustle through like the, you know, the, the deep details of the Constitution and so forth. Yeah, sign me up. I love this stuff. Um, so here's what I'm thinking is in the event that the General Assembly is not going to come back for a special session to override this veto or whatever else. And that seems like an almost certain outcome. That's, that's not going to happen. Certainly not in time for this primary, right? They, in theory, had a window of time to come back to town in May and, and do that if they, if they felt that this, this merited that. So without the legislation, what guides elections policy? And we, we don't have to look back too far to see that the State Board of Elections has, a, they have a mandate in the Maryland Constitution to conduct elections and so forth. So because, because they have a requirement by statute and by the Constitution, um, litigation is in play. You can go to the courts and say, notwithstanding what the law says, we need A, B, or C. And you only have to look back to this spring when... You know, the, the, the process of redistricting got a little gummed up and that itself was in the courts. We saw the State Board of Elections file motions in the Maryland courts saying we need to push back the June primary to a later date. And that's where we ended up on July 19th. So there's already precedent for election policy being driven to some degree by, by legal action and litigation in the Maryland courts based on the mandates that are in law already. So I don't know as a matter of law, I'm not an attorney and I'm not really a deep expert in this area. I don't know whether there is a sufficient argument that these administrative problems and the inability for our local boards and staff to be able to get through their count efficiently and like deliver results on time. I don't know if that is a, sufficient argument to change processes through the courts, but it seems like it's at least potentially in play to me. So as a structure of government matter, it's conceivable that that election leaders could say, we don't have the tools we need to do our job correctly. The constitution and state law requires we run the proper election. So we need this as an emergency measure. And I think that's I, I think there's a logic that says that still could happen. I don't, I don't know if it would happen in time to really remedy things for this July primary, but, but possibly, I guess, maybe the, you know, a window of time to start canvassing and processing those, those mailed-in ballots could be an emergency provision, I guess. I'm speculating, but as a structure of government matter, we've seen it before. Absolutely. I think that's really well put. We know that the, the State Board of Elections is meeting today, and we'll see if anything comes out of that. But I think 
that would be the the avenue here, Michael, would be to go through the courts and try and get some sort of uh, a ruling to say that, hey, you know, these are emergency circumstances. They don't have the tools they need. This is going to be a problem. I do think it's too late at this point to to really help with the primary election. You know, that doesn't just happen. You need lots of people. You need to get prepared. You need to be ready to do that. So um, they have their hands full right now. It's possible that if maybe if you, you made you waved a magic wand today and said, hey, go ahead, it, it's possible that could happen. But yeah, without going through the court, I don't see a venue to, to fix this. We know that uh, Senator Cheryl Kagan, who is the sponsor of the bill that was vetoed, called on the governor to declare a state of emergency to allow for the canvassing of ballots to begin before the, the polls close on Election Day. The governor has not done that. It seems unlikely that's going to happen, too. So I, I, I agree that it seems like the only thing we could do here uh, would be somebody initiates some legal action and gets something from the court that would allow them to do this. But it seems unlikely that would affect the primary, could affect the November election. That would be helpful. But as far as the primary election goes, Michael, I, I am concerned. I mean, I talk to our election folks regularly. Again, they're they're stressed out. They have a lot of stuff going on. And they are very worried about the ability, especially in larger jurisdictions, where you're going to see more mail-in ballots, you're going to see a lot of different primary races and, and multiple candidates. It, it's going to be challenging to get those results delivered quickly. And again, if you can't even begin canvassing until the Wednesday after, um, that also takes a lot of time to do. So it's quite possible, Michael, through no fault of our local boards of election, that we will be dealing with a significant delay in, in, in results for some pretty high-profile races across the state. And, and of course, that's something that keeps me up at night as an election nerd and somebody who uh, wants things to run smoothly and well. I, I think that's going to be a problem and it's something I'm worried about. So hopefully we won't, it won't come to that, but definitely should be on people's radar. If you see on the news uh, the night of the election, the primary that, hey, these results aren't in yet, you can refer back to this episode of the podcast and, and understand why. Right. I, I mean, I, I think I, I feel your pain to some degree and, and that of our, our local election staff and, and, and the professionals there. I just yeah, if if it if the, we have this kind of awful scenario where we get to late Tuesday night and everybody's drumming fingers and watching the news show and watching the website and it's just only, you know, small percentages reporting in many different jurisdictions like people will be calling for the heads of the local election staff and their answer in all honesty will be the state law tied our hands. We have to follow the law. And so we can't do our job in the way that you want and expect. It's not a great outcome to be honest. Now, if, I mean, if it turns out all this stuff gets sorted out days later, it, I guess it won't be the end of the world, but this there's more turbulence in the 2022 election than you would want. And it's, it's been that way from the start. It's been frustrating. Yes. And I should mention that, you know, you, you talked about curing and you did a good job explaining that earlier. A lot of that stuff can be addressed in regs and the state board at their meeting today, they're going to go through that. So that stuff can probably be addressed and we'll be okay with curing. But when it comes to actually canvassing ballots, that, that would have to go through the court or there'd have to be some action from the governor and emergency action. So curing will probably be okay, but this ballot issue is going to linger. Let's jump to another high profile issue that 
We went through in depth when it comes to Maryland, and that's the gas tax. Um, we heard from the President Biden yesterday that he is calling on Congress to initiate a federal holiday for gasoline taxes for three months. That's an idea that is obviously intended to ease financial pressures at the pump. But he also, Michael, asked states and local governments that have local gas taxes, not here in Maryland, states and local governments to spend their gas taxes as well to, to do okay. a holiday. So, look, we got into the Maryland uh, gas tax is 31, 36.1 cents per gallon. It's going to 42.7 cents on July 1st. That's because uh, inflation. So that's automatic. The federal gas tax, Michael, is 18.7 cents per gallon. So if you do the quick math here, if both of those things were to happen, maybe that would be some meaningful relief. I mean, we talked about if you were going to, you know, just get rid of this automatic increase in Maryland from 36 cents to 42 and change cents, that wouldn't be, you know, meaningful relief necessarily. People wouldn't really feel it. But I guess if you did the state and the federal gas tax, if, if everything lined up, then maybe you would have some meaningful relief at the pump. Okay, so this this is in the headlines, and I think it's worth talking about, but it's also worth a, a reality check to some degree, right? I mean, I'm, I'm so first of all, it's it's not taxes that are driving the spike in gas prices. So we 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 start from there. That in theory, this is one of those situations. There's this old saying: when the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. This is sort of a weird situation where the, the government and political leaders know people are upset about inflation. And one of the things that is white hot is people see on in the front of a gas station, you know, by, by law, they're required to post their prices on a big sign. And people can see you know, these days all around me, it's been $4.99, right? $5 gas. And so what do you what can you do about that in Maryland or what can you do about that even as president of the United States? There are a few things. We've got strategic oil reserves and you know you can affect some things in small ways, but for the most part, not a ton. We do tax gasoline and that shows up in the price. So in theory, that becomes the government solution is could we suspend our contribution to that price? But like even if this were a home run, even if everybody agreed that this is the thing to do and we suspended the federal tax, we suspended the entire Maryland tax for whatever time period they want, we're talking about 440 gas. Like I'd still be really ticked off about $4.40 gas right now. So, yeah. I mean, I, I get that it's it's meaningful relief, but it's not like this is tax policy that has brought us to $5 gas it's a variety of other effects and you know you have you have debates about how much of this is opportunism by the companies who who sell the gas gasoline at retail and all that sort of stuff but world affairs all this sort of thing sorry i just had to like walk through that a little bit mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway I, I think this issue is complicated in a number of ways mechanically as well as politically but i think talking about the political part is worthwhile as well as we think, you know, what might happen for Maryland motorists here. Right. So, so first of all, I mean, so the, the president is asking Congress to do this. If, if you fent, if you suspended the federal gas tax for about three months, the cost there is $10 billion, right? So that that's, it's real money, even when you're talking about federal budgets and it's, it's also so worth mentioning, Michael, it's not the consumers that, that are being taxed here. It's, 
It's the, the fuel stations and the people that are selling the gas. So they pay that tax and there's no guarantee that they would, they would then pass along those savings to consumers. Washington right. does not have a mechanism to enforce that. Now, of course, the president urged them to do it in the event this were to happen, but, but they can't enforce it. And then, of course, Michael, Congress would have to actually be the ones to impose a gas tax holiday. The president does not have that authority. And it seems very unlikely that Congress is going to do this. I've heard Democrats and Republicans raising concerns with the idea. So it's not looking good generally when it comes to the federal gas tax holiday. Is that fair to say in your mind? I know you keep up with this stuff too. I, I think it's, um, I think it's, it, it requires multiple leaps of faith to get from where we are now to this actually happening in any major way that you have political obstacles of multiple sorts, right? One, one of them is what you just mentioned, that there's no guarantee that a tax cut would turn into a price cut. And the idea of, well, we just cut $10 billion of gasoline taxes and it just all falls to the bottom line of shareholders of Exxon. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's a political win really for anybody in all likelihood. Mm -hmm. So if we still have $5 gas, it's just there's no tax anymore. So now the companies are making more profits. You end up with a wide range of people really irate about that. Mm -hmm. um, e even less mechanically, but just practically. I mean, we talked about this a little bit. We, we, we broke down the sort of quirky Maryland gas tax and why there's a bump coming on July 1 and so forth. We did that a, a, a two or three weeks ago. Um, I, would, I would refresh some of that conversation a little bit and saying not everybody is in love with gas tax relief as the best policy way to respond to rising prices generally and even with gasoline and so forth. That um, it, it doesn't necessarily provide relief to the people who are feeling the pinch of high prices the most. And for some folks, I mean, we, we, we know that there's, there's a, a sizable, you know, share of the pie chart of Americans out there who basically feel like we should be getting out of the business of using, um, you know, carbon emission, um, you, know, uh, you know, motor fuels uh, anyway. So the idea of subsidizing the use of gasoline and diesel fuel for the next months ahead when times get tough, some folks are like, well, all we're doing is belching more stuff into the air that's causing us all sorts of other societal problems and climate problems. So yeah, there are multiple downsides to this policy, even though it, it sounds superficially appealing to an awful lot of people. Not everybody agrees, even one layer deep on this onion, this is the right way to go. So you put all that stuff together, um, it's hard to get the president and Congress to act on big policy anyway. We've seen that for years and years. It's hard to get state governments to line up and get on board with the same thing. We've seen that for decades. The idea of all this coming together on this principle where there's so many question marks and caveats, I think, you know, if we're, if we're taking bets on this one in a horse race, I think this one's a bit of a long shot. I, I, I agree. I'm not taking that bet. And, and of course, you know, <laughs> politics have to come into play here. We, we're, we are going into an election. And if you do the math here, like if, if this were to happen, you know, maybe next month, if Congress really got their act together and said, OK, we're going to do this for three months. Do you think anybody who's up for election wants to see gas prices spike right before the November election once this holiday <laughs> runs out? Like, I don't think so. Right. So 
there are political implications. There's also, you know, you're looking at polling, you're, you're wondering who Americans blame for this. And I don't know, maybe the opposite party is like, you know what, we, we don't really want to give anybody a win here. We want to help American right. consumers. We don't agree this is the way to do it, by the way. But if we're going to let the president have a win, then maybe that's going to hurt our party going into to the next election. So there are all kinds of yeah. political ramifications to consider here. But I think the one that you spoke to is the most relevant, that there is widespread disagreement among people who know what they're talking about when it comes to this actually making a difference for Americans' checkbooks and actually passing these savings along. There's all kinds of stuff you can get into with this policy, but I don't think it's likely at all that Congress will act. So, But that brings us back to Maryland, Michael, because as I mentioned, right. the president is asking states to do this as well. And, and he tacitly said, hey, I know all these states are flush with cash, right? You got the COVID cash. We know state budgets are looking good. So you can do this. You can afford to do it. So do it at the state level too. That's how we'll have the, the most meaningful impact. Uh, right away, Michael, that's reignited this debate in Maryland. Uh, we, again, we went through this. The governor has been calling on the General Assembly and the comptroller to suspend the gas tax. The comptroller is saying, I don't have the authority to do that. It would have to be the General Assembly coming back into session. So the comptroller is then calling on the General Assembly to come back and do it. But but look, the presiding officers came out very quickly yesterday and said, listen, we have no plans to come back to special session. All the arguments we just made, there's no guarantee that they'll pass along the savings. Um, we've already done this here in Maryland. It, it does cost real money. So I don't think it's likely to happen here either unless the General Assembly came back for a special session. But again, you know, how long do you do it? And if you're going to do it through, you know, October or something, you're not going to let gas prices spike right before an election. So that rolls into, okay, now you're into November, December. And then, you know, how much money would this right. cost the state? How do you backfill that money? We do have a healthy reserve in our rainy day fund. But, you know, at the end of the day, all the things we've already mentioned, you know, is this really going to make a difference? Are people really going to feel, like you just said, you're still going to have like 440 450 gas, that's if you include the federal gas tax, which we've already said is not going to happen. So, okay, you take 42 cents a gallon off in Maryland. Okay, that's that's something. But at the end of the day, it's still 460 a gallon. And that doesn't really, I mean, I think people are still going to be ticked off seeing that as they drive by the gas station every day that we're still well above where we've been recently. And does it really make a difference in our pocketbooks or politically for people who are running for office. I think that's the, the those are the two big questions under consideration here. Yeah. And, and, you know, not to, not to beat a dead horse here, but whose pocketbooks, right? I mean, if, if you end up with relief that shows up in the form of lower price at the pump in gasoline, you're benefiting people who use gasoline. So what if you're someone who's profoundly affected by price increases on food and other things like that, but you don't own a car? Right. You, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a swath of our population, our neighbors and friends and fellow Marylanders who would get nothing out of this. They ride the bus to get to work. They rely on mass transit or, or you know, ride sharing or things like that. And as a practical matter, if you ride the bus to work and, and you're working poor, the, some, someone who's getting an earned income tax credit or something along those lines, that you don't have a car because you're at that level of means, you're getting no benefit out of this at all. But someone like me is getting benefit. I'm, I'm, I'm buying gasoline for, for my car and, and driving to work when I have to and driving to other things and so forth. So like just as 
social policy, it, it has question marks as well. Um, anyway, I, I mean, I, th- I think I think we've 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 run through the considerations here. This is more complicated than does the government give a damn about you? And mm-hmm. I think you know this this initially feels to a lot of people like, yeah, they got enough money, they can go without the gas tax, and it'll help out everyone. Okay, walk that through. There's like 10 bullet points beneath that that are worth thinking through before everybody agrees this is the way to go. Right. And of course, I mean, we, we see rising prices and inflation in a lot of different areas. And I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about the gas tax and, and you know, people say, well, why aren't we talking about, you know, the grocery store prices or whatever? Like, those are all important. But I think gas taxes generally, people drive by the gas station every day. And I think if you ask people, you know, how do you think the economy is doing? What they see every day is a good indicator in, in terms of how they feel that that America is doing. And so I think you're seeing a lot of focus on the gas tax specifically because policymakers know that that really does drive opinions when it comes to our economic vitality and, and how we're doing as a nation. And when people think that we're not doing well, uh, that generally is not good for the folks who are creating the policy, right? So I think you're seeing yep. this focus, and I think there's a reason for it. But but again, I I think unlikely that this stuff's going to happen. It, there's going to continue to be press releases and you know calls for different people to do different things. But at the end of the day, I think it's a bunch of noise, and unlikely that we're going to see a federal gas tax holiday or here in Maryland uh, for the General Assembly to come back to town and say we're going to suspend the gas tax for X amount of time. That also seems really unlikely. So. I guess, Michael, we're going to have to start, you know, just preparing to continue to pay these prices. It doesn't seem like we have relief coming anytime soon. A lot of different factors involved there. But but yeah, bottom line, you're going to have to keep paying that that five bucks a gallon, Michael, so you can trek around and and do whatever the heck you're doing. I, I think that's the most likely outcome here. So, I mean, I, I think it's useful to give context to all this stuff and it's back in the headlines and might stay there. I mean, this is that kind of issue that it feels a little bit like a, you know, like a beach ball. You can just keep batting it around and keep calling for things to happen, even if even if the structure of government doesn't allow it and so forth. Um, it's, you know, it's it's not terrible optics to be on the side of, I want relief for people paying high gas prices. Um, the back end of thinking it through, what is that? Do you actually give people the relief? And do, does it mean that we end up doing less with our infrastructure? And do we end up subsidizing one thing over another? It's, it's, it's complicated. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. But I think we're placing our bets. All right. We'll stay on top of it. And we'll stay on top, of course, uh, this election issue. We'll update you all as soon as we have more info. But we'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. Again, check the show notes. Everything you need to know about the election will be there. So you need to be informed how to vote, where to vote, how to get a ballot, everything you need. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.